Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. Hello, I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Political Roundtable. You can find out more about Week to Week, including how to attend a program when you're in the Bay Area, and about all of our 450 programs a year by going to CommonwealthClub.org. Now, let's join today's program. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and also our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce once again Professor Nancy Unger from Santa Clara University. Um, she's spoken here several times. She spoke about Belle LaFollette last time uh, on her book, and she's a historian of progressive politics. And tonight, we're going to be speaking, she's going to be speaking about the gay bar in American history, a very timely uh, topic for a large number of reasons. She came to me with it oh, six, seven, eight months ago. I said, perfect, we have a time for this. So here we are. It's already arrived. Nancy Younger, thank you very much for coming once again. So it's a great pleasure to be back at the Commonwealth Club, and I want to thank George Hammond uh, for arranging for me to speak, and I certainly want to thank all of you for coming. So in the early morning hours of Sunday, June 12, 2016, a mass murder took place in Pulse, a gay bar in Orlando. And at 11 o'clock that morning, I was scheduled to give a talk to the humanist community of Silicon Valley. And my talk happened to be gay and lesbian history before the Stonewall riots. Well, it was a difficult day for everyone. Um, but during the Q&A after my talk, a woman said, oh, I'm so glad you gave this talk. And she mentioned uh, that her gay son had been killed on 9-11. And I said, are you Mark Bingham's mom? Uh, he was one of the heroes on Flight 93 who co-led the rebellion that uh, ended with the plane crash in Pennsylvania. Yes, she was Mark Bingham's mom. And I was so moved by our conversation that I went home and I thought, oh, I have to do something. And when you're a big nerd like me, um, that means only one thing, that you sit down and write an op-ed uh, <laughs> that somehow shows the value of history. And so, uh, so I wrote a piece on the importance of the gay bar in American history. And it got picked up by Roth Story, and then it got picked up by Time. And uh, I was invited to give a talk on that history at the Birmingham Public Library. And I thought, really? Birmingham, Alabama? <laughs> and it was very well publicized, and uh, uh, C-SPAN came and filmed it. And it's been broadcast nationally several times, and it's been watched um, uh, almost 900 times online. My little nerdy rage made an impact. So <laughs> in his invitation, the archivist in Birmingham wrote, I was struck by the similarities between the role of the gay nightclubs in the gay rights movement and African-American churches in the civil rights movement. And 
I thought that was a pretty perceptive observation, as on the surface, uh, this beautiful church in Montgomery, Alabama on the left doesn't seem to have a whole lot in common with this seedy bar on the right operating illegally in Greenwich Village, New York. That beautiful church in Montgomery was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1974 in memory of Martin Luther King Jr., who served as its pastor from 1954 to 1960. He helped to organize the Montgomery bus boycott from his office in that church's basement. And yet, last June, President Barack Obama declared that seedy bar in New York City as the, first, as the country's first national monument to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer rights. So LGBTQ. And just in case you're not familiar with the acronym, this is what it stands for. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning. As it turns out, in this country, both gay bars and black churches have a very long common history. Both have served as havens and sanctuaries. They've been the centers of solidarity, community, and education. And as a result, they've also been the sites of arson, violence, and persecution. And yet, resistance to those very efforts to intimidate and squelch ultimately led to greater advancements in pride, rights, and freedoms. Even long before the first the, the, the modern gay bars, place has always played a powerful role in the lives of LGBTQ Americans. But today, we're going to focus almost exclusively on the evolution of gay bars and nightclubs and the many roles they have played in American history. Intimate same-sex relationships had long been tolerated in American history. This was especially true of men in single-sex communities like miners and cowboys. Here's the idealized version of the, the gold uh, miners uh, dance. And here's the real thing with the, with the cowboys. The assumption by most straights is that, oh, these men weren't gay. They're just making do. They're just having harmless fun. And the same was true for cross-dressers, just, just harmless fun. Um, which is not to say, of course, that same-sex sexuality was not occurring. It just wasn't on most straight people's radar screens. Urban environments offered far more opportunities to seek out and act on same-sex desires than had ever been available when America was primarily a nation of family farmers. Urban environments uh, were creating lots of spaces, such as public parks, for men to cruise and to find each other. The uh, first YMCA opens in 1851. We have uh, men's bathhouses in the Bowery by 1884. And by the late 1880s, New York's Bleecker Street was home to at least two gay bars, the Slide and the Black Rabbit. In 1892, the term homosexual first appears in print, and it's defined as sexual perversion. So with this invention of homosexuality, gradually comes an awareness among straights that all these same-sex activities might not just be harmless fun after all. And so we see a real crackdown. The New York Daily World uh, denounced the slide bar on Bleecker Street as a pit 
of shame, where wretches without moral sense or shame make nightly a public exhibition of their evil doings. In 1901, the New York Times reported the arrest of several of the patrons of the Black Rabbit and quoted anti-vice activist Anthony Comstock, who called the bar wicked, claiming that <clears throat> Sodom and Gomorrah would blush for shame at hearing to what depths of vice its habitues have descended. In 1903, we have the first raid on the New York City bathhouse, the Ariston, 60 men detained, 14 arrested. Now, New York was not the only place to feature early gay bars and clubs. They began to spring up in virtually every major city. The Dash opened here in San Francisco, for example, in 1908. Even rural establishments called barrel houses or juke joints, if they were remote enough, offered some opportunities for non-typical sexual behaviors, far from the prying eyes of the disapproving church-going establishment. These were by no means for homosexuals only, but they were the starting places for many women who would later become relatively open lesbian blues singers, including Lucille Bogan, author of the explicitly lesbian, lesbian song BD Women's, BD Women's Blues, BD for Bull Dagger. For most homosexuals, however, cities were the place to be. Although almost all clubs remained racially segregated, Harlem resident and dancer Mabel Hampton said about the 1920s, New York was a great place to be a lesbian. You had a beautiful time up there. Oh, girl, you had some time up there. <laughs> By 1932, this nightclub map would feature Gladys's Clam House. And Gladys was Gladys Bentley, who made no secret of her sexual preference for women. Later in the 1930s, uh, Bentley was the featured singer at the Ubangi Club, and you note on the side here the, the, uh, the, her male, uh, gay male uh, backup dancers and singers. Gay bars and nightclubs were in major cities all across America, <clears throat> and they would become very important during World War II, especially the clubs in the coastal cities, because in small towns and farmhouses all across America, most homosexuals were deeply closeted. And in their isolation, many believed they were the only ones to have these feelings and feared that what others said were true, that homosexuals were dangerous perverts. Closeted gays and lesbians from all over the United States would leave their small towns to serve their country, um, either by enlisting in the military or taking up war production jobs. And at some point, most ended up in or near a coastal city, and almost all ended up in some city, often for the very first time. Many closeted gays go to their first bar. All right, so here's the San Francisco's Black Cat Cafe. Many um, lesbians go to their first lesbian bar, and you'll notice that uh, Gladys Bentley is still the headliner here, even though we're in the 1940s by now. They find that they are not the only ones, that there are lots of people who are atypical sexually and who are not perverted, dangerous criminals, deviants, but good, loyal Americans who are serving their country well in time of need. 
when the war is over, they don't want to return to their small towns and small town closets. Many settle instead in the urban areas where they first experienced some sense of self-acceptance. So they're poised at the end of World War II for a whole new era. There was really a, a hope, almost an expectation, that this would be the period of gay liberation. Instead, they're going to have to endure about 25 more years of repression. After hopes had been so raised by World War II, the Cold War was a particularly horrible time to be gay, lesbian, transgender, or bisexual in the United States. Gay men and lesbians were seen as particular risks to national security. Sexual perverts who have infiltrated our government in recent years are perhaps as dangerous as the actual communists. Atypical sexuality was grounds for immediate and permanent dismissal from most jobs, including all government jobs. Ultimately, this is going to encompass um, uh, government positions like postal carriers and public school teachers. Uh, and so most homosexuals are going to remain in the closet. So what to do then with that nascent pride and sense of identity that was born out of World War II? You can't unring the bell. You can't unlearn something once you've, once you've learned it. And so the gay bar is going to become more important than ever, but also scarier. Scarier because of police raids. It was illegal to serve an alcoholic drink to a homosexual because they were deemed inherently disorderly. Remember that homosexuality itself is not only considered unnatural and immoral, it's illegal. And not just same-sex acts, but any same-sex conduct, like holding hands, could be deemed lewd and lascivious behavior. Now you can imagine what would happen if you got your name or, God forbid, your picture in the paper uh, being arrested uh, during such a raid? You'll note the headline uh, here, uh, eight teachers, suburb principal seized. So if you're married, as most closeted homosexuals were, you, this is immediate grounds for divorce with the spouse getting the sole custody of children. You're going to lose your job, lose your apartment, cut out by your church and by your friends. And that's even if the charges are dropped. Uh, if the charges are pressed, then you face the prospect of a jury trial. Virtually everyone facing a morals charge would plead to a lower misdemeanor, drunk and disorderly, for example, or pay a fine uh, to get out, of, get out of having to go, go to trial. You could also be committed to a mental hospital, and this was uh, particularly true for young people, to be cured of your illness. This could involve electroshock therapy and various forms of aversion therapy. We'll be back with more here on John Zipper of Commonwealth Club right after this. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. 
It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do. Especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. So getting caught in a gay bar was a really quick way to ruin your life. So why go? Gays and lesbians who came of age in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s speak over and over and over again of how they risked their reputations, their marriages, their families, their livelihoods by going to gay bars. Because the gay bars saved their lives. They kept them from despairing that they were the only ones, kept them from believing that society was right, that they were sick and criminal and would be better off dead. In the bars and nightclubs, they found hookups and one-night stands. They also found partners and lovers and friends and people who accepted them as they were. They didn't have to carry out the exhausting work of pretending to be straight. They could be themselves. And being true to yourself is very precious, and it's worth a lot of risk. Lesbians during this period suffered double discrimination. Even most gay men saw women as inferior. And in the days before widespread feminism, the lesbian bar was the truly rare place where women were not pressured to cater to men. A lesbian said of the 1940s, we could throw off our girdles and dresses and high heels, which was the uniform virtually required of all women. Lesbians could wear pants and be free from straight men's unwanted sexual attention. The lesbian bar led to the creation of a whole alternate society and culture. And for many working class lesbians, that was the world of the butch femme. After being, and being rigidly butch or femme offered some surprising protections. It created roles for lesbians, told them how to dress, how to behave, and undercover cops posing as butches or femmes to try to get into lesbian bars were easily spotted. They were terrible at this and, and kept out. As one regular said of the lesbian bar, that was my world and the other world was not real. Now, an early legal challenge to homophobic laws grew out of the police harassment of the owner and patrons of San Francisco's Black Cat Cafe. The owner took the state to court, and in 1951, the California Supreme Court said, quote, 
something more must be shown that that many of his patrons were homosexuals and that they used his restaurant and bar as a meeting place, close quote. So homosexuals could legally gather and drink in bars in California. But the California court in the same decision also confirmed that gay bars could be closed with, quote, proof of the commission of illegal or immoral acts on the premises. And this includes same-sex kissing or even touching. So police harassment is going to uh, continue. Also early in the 1950s, some very brave gay men and lesbians formed the organizations the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Belitis and began to fight back against government treatment. Bars increasingly became the settings for crucial battles in the campaign for gay rights. And perhaps the least known, but the most important, took place inside this bar. On April 21st, 1966, Mattachine staged a sip-in. A sip-in, like a sit-in, only with drinks. <laughs> they, they bring a photographer, and um, they, um, they announce to the bartender, I mean, it's a gay bar, but they announce to the bartender that they are gay men and they would like to have a drink. And so um, here you can see the bartender putting his hand over the glass. He cannot serve them because they have identified themselves as, uh, as gay men. So um, Mattachine then challenged the New York laws that prohibited serving alcoholic beverages to gays. The state Supreme Court ruling in the case that gays could peaceably assemble at bars established a new era of licensed, legally operating gay bars and included a new gay bar in 1967 only a block away from Julius, the Stonewall Inn. Mattachine also for, uh, forced the New Jersey Supreme Court to rule that gays could peaceably assemble uh, in bars in that state as well. Okay, so now back to the West Coast. Just as lesbians were often rejected or discriminated against in some gay men's bars, gays and lesbians of color faced racial as well as sexual discrimination, and transgender people were virtual pariahs, not accepted even in gay bars. Compton's Cafeteria was a diner in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. And I know I'm stretching this. I said bars only, but we'll go for a diner just to make the point here. Um, it's one of the few places where drag queens and transgender people congregated publicly in the city. Cross-dressing was illegal, and so the police regularly raided the place. In August of 1966, just a few months after the sip-in at Julius, some patrons began picketing the cafeteria because the management kept calling the police to arrest their cross-dressing customers. During an attempted arrest, the customers began to fight back, and a riot broke out. It's one of the first known efforts by cross-dressing and transgender people to stand up to abuse and discrimination by the police. And there's something very empowering about standing up for yourself. Gay bars were sites of all kinds of empowerment, they were life-saving and they were fun, despite the fact that they still represented real danger in the form of constant police raids and harassment. It was no longer illegal to serve an openly gay person a drink, but atypical sexual activity in any form remained against the law in almost every state. In 1962, 
Illinois was the first state in the United States to decriminalize homosexual acts between consenting adults in private. But it wasn't until 2003 that the Supreme Court declares the sodomy laws still enforced by many states to be unconstitutional. Which means that people in gay bars could be harassed by police, not only for sex acts, but for drunken disorderly conduct, obscene behavior, which as we know means, can just mean holding hands or even touching. A major turning point in LGBTQ history started at the Stonewall Inn at about 1.20 in the morning on June 28, 1969. Stonewall was at gay bar in Greenwich Village, New York, and two of the key words here are race and class. So who are the patrons of this bar? Um, a lot of working class people, drag queens, butch lesbians, uh, some are people of color, um, uh, a lot of these people have already been deemed to be uh, lower class, um, sort of been excluded from society. Significantly, many are openly gay. Um, they are not terrified of being outed. They're not going to lose their jobs, homes, families. This word is already out. Stonewall had been raided several times previously for operating without a liquor license. Lots of bars did this. It was just cheaper to pay off the police than it was to keep up a liquor license. So they enter the Stonewall Inn and they start a standard raid. But the patrons have had enough. And they begin rioting inside the bar. And then this spills out into the street into a riot and they throw bricks and bottles and they set fires. And um, it, this gets a little notice in the press and it was just incredibly exhilarating for a lot of people who participated. They come back the next couple of nights and do it again. So we have uh, the second night. Um, then we have the, 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 oops, the third night. And um, it gets minimal uh, news coverage, except for this really snotty article um, uh, that was uh, um, in, in this paper. But um, it, uh, it, it, it was just so significant because there was this sense of fighting back against injustice. And just like other oppressed peoples were doing in the civil rights movements and other things that, that were going on. So this violence seems to generate respect or at least attention in this country. A decade after the riots, the poet um, Allen Ginsberg remembered, you know, he says, the guys were so beautiful. They've lost that wounded look that fags all had 10 years ago. Yeah. What made this riot memorable and meaningful, even as the sip-in at Julius and the Compton Cafeteria riot faded from public memory? I think there were two things. One was the immediate creation of the Gay Liberation Front. And uh, this was very organized. It got a lot of media attention. And the other thing was that a year later, the march was commemorated in a parade. And so here's the parade in New York, a couple different views of that. Uh, but it was also uh, uh, commemorated on Hollywood Boulevard, uh, in Boston. Um, and as, as we know, um, Stonewall is still commemorated every year in gay pride marches in late June all around the world. So there's an old expression um, that used to be used to reveal one's homosexuality. It was called letting a hairpin drop. So Stonewall has been called the hairpin drop heard around the world, all right, as gays and lesbians come out of the closet. And publications and organizations proliferate, 
and gay bars become increasingly visible and popular sites for socializing and political organizing. They're also sites for violence. Uh, people leaving bars are frequently victims of street violence, gay bashing, and so forth. The Pulse Bar in Orlando was not the first to be the site of a mass murder. In 1973, an arsonist set fire to the gay bar, the Upstairs Lounge in New Orleans, killing 32. Despite the large number of fatalities, no politician, not the mayor or the governor, and certainly not the president, expressed sympathy or made any kind of statement. Um, it was likely set by a psychologically unstable patron, but we will never know because the police were not interested in investigating and the suspect committed suicide the following year. According to Upstairs Lounge fire survivor Mike Moreau, what happened to us had to be kept so private. The public didn't want to know about it, and if they heard about it, they didn't care, saying things like, oh, thank God they're gone. They deserved it. And yet... The following year, 1974, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders of the American Psychiatric Association removes homosexuality from its official list of mental disorders. As one gay activist put it, we all went to bed sick and the next morning we woke up well. <laughs> Discrimination, nevertheless, continues throughout the 1970s and beyond, and gays and lesbians continue to flock to gay bars and nightclubs. Alison Bechtel, a cartoonist, author of the graphic memoir Fun Home, remembered that in 1980, my first gay bar was Satan's in Akron, Ohio. I was used to feeling like a total alien when I was in any kind of a social group, but that night in the large mixed crowd, I experienced the profound existential relief for once of not being the only queer. A year later, in 1981, I moved to New York. We'll be back with more here on John Zipper of Commonwealth Club right after this. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boys came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. There was a lot of routine anti-gay hostility on the street. Even in Sheridan Square on a weekend night, you'd get hassled for holding hands. But once you stepped past the bouncer at the Duchess, you were home free. The bar had its own perils, but it afforded me the space just to be with my guard down, and that was salvational. A year after Bechtel started going to the Duchess, some of its patrons staged a protest um, of the harassment, ongoing harassment by the liquor board. So why be so protective of, of a bar? And I thought this sign really, really, this sign outside a gay bar. In here, in, in here, all your gay bar dreams come true. Out there, disappointing real life. A huge crisis hit the gay community in the early 80s, the HIV AIDS crisis. And in many cities, the bathhouses were closed as ground zero for spreading the disease. And so gay bars become some of the most important centers for not only sharing information about safer sex practices, but for planning protests, in particular demanding that the government quicken the pace of the development and testing of new drugs. Many gay bar patrons became members of ACT UP, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Potter and designer Jonathan Adler remembered being in a gay bar in Providence, Rhode Island, a city long known for being a center of gay culture. He was, quote, frivolously dancing Jabronski beat. In walks a dude from New York who was a member of ACT UP, wearing a leather jacket that said, don't tread on me. It was a defining moment for me. It was about gay empowerment. It was about not getting messed with, and it was about the importance of addressing an existential crisis head on. I moved to New York the next year. Throughout the height of the HIV AIDS crisis and epidemic, and even today, gay bars and nightclubs continue to play a crucial role in the lives of LGBTQ Americans. Author Andrew Solomon remembered, ease and dignity had seemed incompatible with my gayness until my sweaty June bar visit set me on a new path, one that much later led me to marrying my husband, having our children, and becoming an activist for LGBTQ rights. CNN anchor Don Lemon remembered, I was deeply closeted in college. Everybody was. It was the 80s. It was the South. And people didn't come out then as quickly as they do now. After I finally built up the liquid courage to do it, to go to a gay bar in Baton Rouge, I never turned back. It was gay heaven. I didn't have to pretend anymore. I was finally at home. Television host Andy Cohen said even in the, of the 1990s, it was quite literally like stepping into another world. It's where I built a community of friends. Pre-internet, gay bars were integral to our social development. They were an escape from the often unfriendly outside world packed every night of the week, and everyone inside was a friend. According to actress uh, and musician Carrie Brownstein, a gay bar is ours. It's ours like putty. It's ours like clay. The environment is both ridiculous and profound, but we get to decide what, when it's one or the other, or both, or neither. 
Only away from the glare of homophobia could we experience malleability, a flexing of the self, a full rotation. Who knew there were 360 degrees? Lori Stevens of Tennessee states, there's a monthly queer dance party hosted at a local bar here in East Nashville. Since many of us don't or can't go to church, bars and clubs have always been the central gathering place for us. They have an almost spiritual quality. Jake Sakaris of Chicago agrees, calling them sacred spaces isn't hyperbola. I didn't feel like it was finally okay to be myself the first time I went to church or to the movies, or the post office, or the first day of kindergarten, or my first company Christmas party. The first time I finally felt like I didn't have to watch what I said, or police who I looked at, or feel shameful for who I was attracted to, was the first time I set foot in a gay bar. Emily Sullivan recalled, where I grew up in rural Virginia, there is no safe place for LGBT citizens, most of whom are invisible. My move to Brooklyn has brought me shelter because I grew up in a town that made my sexuality feel painful. I can't take these spaces for granted and what they offer LGBT people. They are solace, they are accepting, they are safety. Others spoke of the importance of gay and lesbian bars catering to people of color. According to Lori Stevens of Nashville, as someone who is queer and Latina, these spaces are even more important the mainstream LGBT community is often very white, and I know it's not something they intend. We don't get a lot of LGBT white people standing up and saying things like, immigration is an LGBTQ issue, even though it is. A lot of the people who were killed and wounded in Orlando were identified as immigrants, some of them undocumented. That's a whole other level of barriers for these families. Like many popular clubs, Pulse in Orlando, Florida, served as a welcoming place to party for gays and lesbians who weren't white or middle class or upper class. Pulse not only welcomed the area's large immigrant population, it also was a community partner, hosting a variety of social and educational events, including, for example, breast cancer awareness and HIV AIDS prevention. According to its website, Pulse Orlando serves as, quote, a driving force within the LGBT community seeking to make strides towards equality, awareness, and love for all. The mass shooting there on June 12, 2016, resulted in the deaths of 49 people. It's a particularly outrageous violation of the notion of gay bars as places of safety from a hostile, homophobic world. Jake Sakaris summed up the Orlando massacre like this. If you don't know what we're feeling, think of the place in your life where you felt most comfortable and safe and loved. It's probably the house you grew up in. Now imagine someone burning that house to the ground with your family inside because he hates you. That feeling is pretty close to how we feel right now. I think it must have been a little bit like many Afri African Americans felt after the 1963 bombing that killed four little girls in a church in Birmingham, Alabama. Their sacred space had been violated, and some of their youngest and most vulnerable had been killed. And so many went to church to find solace and comfort and community. Gays, too, refused to allow their sacred spaces to become sites of fear. 
After the killings, they flocked to clubs and bars to grieve and to find solidarity and to reaffirm that they would not be intimidated back into the closet. Pulse tweeted, you cannot silence us. You cannot destroy us. We are not going anywhere. A survivor of the upstairs lounge arson fire said, to see the outpouring of love and support for these poor Pulse families, see that what they have gotten is fantastic. They are hurting the same way that we hurt, but at least they know that the world supports them and understands their grief. He continued, President Obama actually addressed the nation, which I thought was very moving. In his last will and testament, openly gay San Francisco city supervisor Harvey Milk wrote, if a bullet should enter my brain, let that bullet destroy every closet door. Burst down those closet doors once and for all, he urged, and stand up and start to fight. The attack on Pulse provoked the same kind of response that followed Milk's assassination. The Pulse massacre prompted many closeted gays to finally come out. Some today are worried about the future of the gay bar. Shortly before the massacre at Pulse, I gave the keynote at a gay conference in San Francisco talking about the importance of place in gay and lesbian history. And during the Q&A, I was asked what I thought of Grindr and other electronic apps that are taking the place of some gay bars as a way to hook up. And I explained that I was no expert. I had recently asked my daughter how her Kindle date went. She rolled her eyes and said, mother, you mean my Tinder date? So I think my conference questioner wanted me to disavow Grindr as nothing more than an avenue for casual sex, but I was hesitant to do so. Gay bars were once disdained for the same reason. I'm certainly no expert on Grindr, uh, but this new book, Queering the Countryside, impressed upon me deeply the importance of the internet and its various applications in making many gay men and lesbians, especially those um, isolated or closeted in small towns, feel less alone and more like members of an accepting and supportive community. Even a brief history of gay bars and nightclubs reveals the importance of community, of the human need for acceptance and safety. Like the black church, the gay bar has been the site of solidarity and spiritual renewal. It's been the object of attack, but it's also served as a site for fostering pride, for planning to overcome hatred and discrimination, and to promote safety and acceptance. Gay bars and nightclubs are unique places and spaces that continue to foster gay pride, facilitate progress, and promote feelings of belonging, solidarity, and joy. Thank you. And I'd like to remind our audiences online and on the radio that they're listening to Professor Nancy Unger speaking about the gay bar in American history at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. So it's time for questions. Who would like to ask the first question? In your research, did you hit upon the negative influence of alcohol and drugs in the many gay bars? They sure. Sure. No, I, that's a really good question. And that, that this was one of the biggest problems that a lot of gay men and lesbians came across is, you know, alcoholism particularly uh, in earlier years when they were so oppressed and so forth, it was a real problem. If you don't go to the gay bar, 
um, you know, what, what do you do then? So there are particular chapters of AA and so forth. But yeah, alcoholism was a real, uh, was a real issue. And I think t t today, any bars are a little more likely to be, you know, you, you can go there and not drink. But it's a real temptation if you're an alcoholic. So it was a real, it was a real problem. It, it sort of facilitated alcoholism for some people. And then once they couldn't drink anymore, kind of didn't have a place to, place to go. So yeah, it was a real issue. It continues to be a real issue. Has, uh, has history passed this? Uh, I live in Marin, for example. At one point, there were five gay bars. There are none now. And um, I don't think there ever will be. There's no need to be. The population is probably 10% gay. And I wonder if the net and the much larger acceptance has displaced much of the, uh, much of the purpose that bars once served. I think, I think it absolutely has. And I read uh, two types of articles, one that is bemoaning the loss of all of these very specific things. Uh, a couple of my uh, lesbian friends uh, take these uh, lesbian cruises. And there used to be lots of them, because it was the only place they could really relax, take a vacation. They said, you know, they're, they're really dwindling, um, because they can go take vacations all, all kinds of places. So, um, so there are those who are saying, oh, you know, this is, this is terrible. We're losing this part of our history. And others saying, isn't this wonderful that we don't have to be ghettoized in that, in that way? It's a little bit the same kind of crisis, I think, that's been going on, for example, for historically black institutions. Um, you know, they're really glad that schools are integrated now, but, you know, the, the more houses and so forth are sort of facing a, a crisis um, a, 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 in, the same, in the same kind of way. So I think it's two, two sides of the same coin. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the writers that protested in the Soviet Union during communism also uh, felt bad after uh, communism fell because they didn't have the same situation anymore. They didn't have the fight uh, for something to go forward. And I, you know, it's, it's a transition in everything. Um, you're very happy to have the success, though. Mm -hmm. At least one would think so. Mm -hmm. But the history. I'm sure the younger people all feel good about the success. Mm -hmm. Next question. Professor Unger, do you see a difference in um, gays versus lesbians versus the queer community and how they get together and form community? Oh, most definitely. Um, I don't think it's quite as strong as it used to be. Um, that uh, there was there was a real um, a real divide for a very long time, and I think a lot of that came from this country was very divided, very clear that men are this way and women are that way. And I think that gay men and lesbians are no less vulnerable to those kinds of you know, assumptions as well. I think that um, as the feminist movement and so forth moves forward, um, I think there's more mixing. But I think that there were very different cultures. Um, and of course, it depended on you know, urban, rural, black, white, I mean, a number of different um, uh, uh, factors going on. But um, yeah, the, um, there are some wonderful uh, film documentaries that before and after Stonewall have some, some really nice um, interviews and, and lesbians and gay men talking about how completely different they, they were. And a real sort of crisis coming with the HIV AIDS um, crisis saying, well, all right, you know, lesbians are saying, okay, for God's sake, yes, a lot of these guys have been jerks to us, but we have to band together now, and we have to overcome these cultural differences because we're all, you know, brothers and sisters in this. But uh, yeah, there have been a lot, of, a lot of cultural differences. All the distinct lesbian bars in San Francisco have closed down, uh, yet Castro Street's going very strong. Can you talk about that? About why? I'm not sure I have a good answer to that, to, to that question. I don't know if it's a matter of that there were, and perhaps you can enlighten me, were there fewer lesbian bars compared to men's bars strong? It, it, may, it may just be a proportional 
uh, proportional uh, change. So, but I, but I know this is true in major cities all over the country. That that uh, the, the the bars are are closed. I mean, there's some there are still some that are going strong, but overall the numbers are are dwindling. Yeah. So, mom, um, <laughs> uh, is this really a San Francisco thing? I mean, I grew up in the area. I don't know how prominent it is in other like urban areas. I mean, like a place like Portland is that kind of as big of a scene. But you look at a place like Austin. I, mean, I guess Austin maybe Austin is a good example, but certain cities that are not as you know, as hugely urban, but is it like San Francisco, or are we really that significantly? Well, San Francisco and New York are sort of the, you know, I think the most intense, the most populous, and so forth, but I would say it, it even, you know, in in my research, what's really striking is by the end of the 1800s, in virtually every city of any size in the United States, if you know where to go, there's a gay bar, there's a gathering place. And I think that um, the port cities certainly um, were bigger and more developed, and there was more access and so forth. But um, but there are um, uh, you know in the Midwest in you know, Chicago is a huge center. I mean, that, uh, and even small cities, like I say, it wasn't, if, if it wasn't, it wasn't terribly hard to find if you were, if you were in the know. Yeah. Well, San Francisco's celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love. So might as well ask this question because someone brought it up that 50,000 to 100,000 teenagers descended upon San Francisco during that summer. Um, was, is there any uh, separate or not separate uh, gay component to that? Was there a lot of people that came? Is that also part of a... Well, I think, you know, gay people are like straight people. They follow the trends and so forth. Yeah. They, they came as well. I would also add, though, that particularly by 67, we have really the beginning of the feminist movement is going, and I think that's when we see a lot more women beginning to experiment more. And that sort of free love aspect of that, I think we saw um, more, more of that uh, happening. Your talk is um, centered on American history. Um, has your research done uh, uncovered anything in world history that's been very interesting? And maybe how far back have you found evidence of the same type of gathering places for gays or lesbians? Well, I am. Um embarrassingly um, myopic. I really just do American history. That's pretty much what, what I do. But, you know, if you look at, um, uh, in my class, um, uh, we do kind of a broad sweep when we start with the ancient Romans and the Greeks and so forth and move forward. But if you look at, you know, 1600s, uh, Venice, for example, was sort of the San Francisco of its day. Um, it was one of the most, most well-known places. So, yeah, this is not, a, even though I'm an American historian, this is definitely not just an American phenomenon. Um, it's, it's happening. It's happening all over the world. Um, I just um, I only trace it here. Yeah. Um, and part of that history, going way back, and is is that it, it it's accepted or at least tolerated in different times. It hasn't made it this far usually, but then it goes away again. Do you have any idea about about what factors from your studies uh, create this? You said. Uh, for example, after World War II, you mentioned in your lecture that after World War II, people were poised to, to, to expect more tolerance, but the Cold War got in the way and it actually was worse for a while. Yeah, well, to me, because I also teach a lot of women's history, a lot of it has to do with gender roles 
and this idea that, okay, during a time of war, it's all right to uh, allow some some weakening of the gender roles and women can wear pants and work in war industry and so forth. But boy, the minute it's over, we want everybody back doing their traditional things. And I think that sexuality is part of that. Homosexuality, heterosexuality, it's, there's more sort of freedom and breaking of the rules during time of war because it's an emergency. We need everybody, every pair of hands. But once, and, and you can trace this back from the colonial wars to the American Revolution all the way up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. your question. But he also asked an interesting question about the periodicity or the cyclic nature of acceptance mm-hmm. and how through world history, again, kind of out of your thing, but yeah. how it kind of, did you get any information about that? Because that is an interesting topic. Yeah, no, that's 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 beyond my beyond my scope. So um, I, I did want to tell you, though, that the, um, I thought you might get a kick out of this, the, the uh, first um, piece I ever wrote in gay and lesbian history was this um, teaching straight gay and lesbian history. I wrote it for the Journal of American History and uh, started talking about my class and how I came to teach this course at a Jesuit institution. And it's kind of an interesting story. And I just wanted to tell you, I'm very proud of it. It got um, anthologized in a book and um, it was denounced on Fox News. So <laughs> this is... <laughs> this is one of my great claim, my great pride moments when it's uh, being denounced on Fox News. Yes. How do you see the the bars now taking a role in what we what it used to take as being a support supportive uh, place for for LGBT? Well, I think it certainly is still doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. I think those bars are still doing that. I think that, though, it certainly it's no longer the only place where mm-hmm. where that happens. So I think that I mean, I think they're they're still thriving, but I do think that um, you know that there are fewer in number. Mm-hmm. They, they 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 serve their purpose, you know, very profoundly. But again, it's not the only place mm-hmm. I think where people can go and feel accepted and and to be themselves. So again, it's kind of a um, Kind of a, the two sides of a double-edged sword. Yeah. yeah. With the current administration, um, with I think having an influence on what's going on with the LGBT community and and states having anti-gay bills mm-hmm. uh, introduced. Uh, do you see a change in how the the bar may serve as? places for well, I think social that, change? I think that's an excellent question, and I think that's really going to be up to all of us. I mean, you know, just, just as it was up to the people in the past to say, no, we're not going to tolerate this anymore, and to fight back, and to take the legal route, and, and so forth, I think that, um, you know, uh, people are going to be pushed as far as they're going to let themselves push, and I think it's all up to all of us to uh, to say, no, 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 we, d- we didn't come this far, you know, to, to mm-hmm. take a backward step at this, at this point. But I think that... Um, uh, you know, that's one of the things I really love about being a historian is seeing what a difference people can make. I mean, who would have known, you know, a bunch of people, you know, uh, fighting back in a bar in 1969 was going to end up being commemorated every year. I mean, I think we have that kind of power. I think we just have to know it and, and act on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. You used as an analogy, uh, you know, the, the black churches for the civil rights thing. Are the black churches also um, suffering from a loss of interest or decline because of the achievements that were made, just like the gay bars. I mean, do you, do you know about that? Um, well, I don't, but that doesn't stop me from... You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I think that... Um, 
I don't, you know, again, it really depends on which black churches we're talking about and where and where they are. I think that for for many black churches, they continue to be, you know, the church. But I think I think for many African American communities, that continues to be a real center for social justice and activism and so forth. So I think that like like bars, it kind of ebbs and flows. But I, I think that's still uh, that's still going on. I think churches, generally speaking, may be kind of you know losing some of their um, uh, membership, but I. I don't think that core um, uh, um, role has really changed that dramatically. Uh, and he also brought up the new administration. If you go back to when Ronald Reagan was elected, um, was there not a similar sort of social, like it's not so much that the president himself took the stand, but that it sort of uh, allows the, the, uh, the uh, right-wing uh, attitudes to be expressed more freely in a way. Well, uh, sure. I mean, Reagan said in a press conference, you know, he happened to think that homosexuality was a tragic illness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he didn't even hang back. I mean, he, you know, he said that. He was very, very clear about it. So, yeah, I think whenever you have an administration that is, is not going to, um, you know, you can either just be passive and not be standing up for what's right or actively, you know, contributing to, to the other side. But again, I don't know how much we can control that, but I think we can certainly work to control, you know, what to, what we can. But no, it's, it's very disturbing um, uh, to, to see what's happening today. Yeah. Just a quick comment on historical perspective. I was living in New York during Stonewall and I was in high school, but, you know, I had no idea that it happened. I mean, you know, obviously now it's a big deal. So I was just curious. So I went back, you know, and tried to find the article in the New York Times that you showed, which, you know, because I read the New York Times and, you know, Melee and Village Bar, I wouldn't care about that. And I think it was along page 76 or something. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I expected this banner headline based on what we know now. Yeah. But I think it's just fascinating back then. It was just a blip. Yeah, no, it was just a little, a little blip. And I, I was um, on a business trip with my dad in New York at that time. Um, I'm 61, so I was 13, or almost 61. I was 13 at the time. And it was a big deal because Judy Garland had died. That was what was the big, that was the big story. Um, and that's, that's what I remember about it. So, um, but yeah, no, it's like a lot of things. You have to really dig for those, for those little stories. But, uh, but it did you grow. But again, I do think, as, as I already said, it's really interesting that I, I think the, the, the parade more than anything else is what made Stonewall memorable. That, that was what really, really got it going. And I think people today, a lot of my students march in pride parades. They have no idea what they're commemorating. They just go because it's, you know, it's the parade. But, uh, but we know. And, uh, and I think that's really, really a powerful thing. Um, do you think the, the proliferation of gay organizations, LGBT organizations, has drawn people away from bars? Many of the things, the inter interactions that used to occur at bars occur in clubs. I'm president of three of them. Uh, your campus has a number of LGBT organizations. I spoke with one about two months ago. And in, along with that, younger gay people can more easily begin to express themselves long before they would be of drinking age. And so they never even get to where... The, the bar was their entry into gay life. You know, I think you're making a really, really good point that by focusing just on the dwindling of the gay bars, it makes it sound like there's a dwindling of gay activism or power. And I think you're exactly right that it's available all all over the place, so, so many different venues. And I think most of us know our sexuality long before we're of drinking age. And this, you're right, there are so many different venues, places to go, opportunities for fellowship, to find other people, and, and so forth. So that, that also is, um, I'm really glad that you made that, made that point. Yeah. Thank you very much, Professor. That was a Thank you. great history.
And so ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 115th year of enlightened discussion. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Week to Week from the Commonwealth Club, airing on the Michelle Miao Show on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm John Zipperer, and you can also hear me Tuesdays when I co-host Michelle Miao's program with her. Find out more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemiao.com.